All right. Uh, if you have your Bible open to Romans chapter 14, we're finally back in Romans as we try to finish out this, this series through this letter that we've been chipping away at all school year. We're going to have one more week in it after this one. If you're still here next week, uh, Greg Key is going to help us cross the finish line um, of the letter, and I'm grateful to him for that. He always does such a good job. And while I'm at it, he's not here this morning, but I'm grateful to Chris Duck for teaching in my absence last week because um, you really can't plan when to get sick. Wouldn't that be nice if you could? But Chris didn't have a whole lot of notice or prep time uh, that he would be teaching last Sunday, but he did a great job. In fact, he's, um, he's preaching at a church across town this morning at West Auburn Baptist, so y'all be praying for Chris as he teaches and preaches this morning. That being said, we were already moving at a pretty pretty fast clip through the end of Romans after, since chapter 12 in order to finish it on time, basically going a chapter a week. So having been a, away from a week, having missed a week, we, we got ourselves in another little bit of a hole. And so the passage we're going to consider this morning is all of chapter 14 and also running through basically the first half of chapter 15. The one good thing about that this morning is um, if you're going to have to cover a bigger chunk like that in one week, this is a pretty good chunk to cover because um, this is four, chapter 14, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse either 8 or 13. It's the, it's the longest intentional uh, section of argument in the letter to the Romans outside the first half of the, the letter. You know, it seems like in the, in the, latter, in the latter chapters of, of Romans... Paul is bouncing around from topic to topic to topic. But in this actual passage this morning, even though it's a little bit longer, he is focused on one issue in particular. We're not going to be able to cover, because it's such a bigger chunk, we're not going to be able to cover every verse, but we're going to do our best to see clearly the main points that Paul is making around this one issue. Again, just to get our bearings straight, um, through, you know, hopefully you, you know all this already. We're in this latter section of the letter, and, and Paul is here fleshing out different practical applications of all the theological truths that he, that, he, that he talked about in the first 11 chapters of the letter. And the theological truth that he focused on in the first bit is the gospel. I mean, that's, that's, how, the, that's how the letter began. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God. That's one, one which he promised beforehand, so he's going to be talking about the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is Paul indicating that this whole letter that I'm about to write, is, is, it centers on the gospel. Chapters 1 through 11 explain the what and the why of the gospel. What it is, why it's true. Chapter 12 through the end of the letter is talking about the so what. What does, it, what does it matter? What does it mean? What practical application does it make in my life? Um, and uh, chapter 13, Paul turned his attention to uh, how believers ought to live and act toward the governing authorities over them. And then, and then, then also how we ought to live and act toward each other. That's, that was the last time we were in Romans that's the idea that he carries over this how we ought to live toward each other. That's the idea that he carries over into our passage today. How we ought to live toward each other when we disagree with each other. That, that's the point of, of this passage. How we ought to live toward each other when we disagree with each other over matters of opinion. 
Okay, that's, that's really the nub of it. Um, how, we, how we ought to live toward other believers who are different from us in some way, who don't think exactly like we do or believe exactly like we do. And I'm not talking about cardinal doctrines of the faith. It's not like somebody who doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead like I believe or that he's coming again. Like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, and here's a fancy word that's good for you to know, matters of adiaphora, adiaphora, or matters of indifference, matters of just dis- disputable things. Like, d- there's more than one, si- one way to see it, and all sides are within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. And how do we, how do we live toward each other when we hold differences of opinion? And both are orthodox in some way. So you can see very clearly in this text <clears throat> how Paul is going to establish all that he says here um, on the basis of what the gospel teaches us. I mean, that, what I said, that's what I said, that the, the, the first 11 chapters are the what and the why of the gospel, and chapters 12 on are the so what. He's still talking about the gospel, just like what flows out of it in our life, right? And, and you can see how he's still rooting it all in the gospel here. Notice, for example, in chapter 14, verse 3, when he says, let, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? What's the root? God has welcomed him. Either side, God has welcomed him. That's gospel language. And then notice in chapter 15, it hasn't stopped there either. In chapter 15, verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's gospel language. What God has done for you in Christ, gospel, you do to other people. And he's applying this to an extraordinarily relevant issue for us. I mean, it's always been one, obviously. He's writing about it to the church in Rome 2,000 years ago. But for sure today, too, because we, we live, and you know it, we live in a time... We live in a culture and cultural moment when matters of opinion, matters of opinion can take on an almost identity status in, 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 our, in, 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 in people. So much so that when, when, you, when a person meets somebody who holds a different opinion, they take it very personally um, or almost see the language of a different opinion as, language, as violent language. They'll talk about the language as being violent. So... Evidently, Christians have always needed counsel in how to disagree with each other, how to take disagreement and give disagreement in a godly and Christ-like way, but in our cultural moment and climate, we certainly do now as well. Um, We need to read some of our passage. I don't know if we're going to read the entire thing because it's so long, but um, I'm not going to assume that you've all already read it. So let's read just a little bit of it and then to get the flavor of it, and then then we'll dive into it. Uh, beginning in chapter 14, verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. 
The one who observes, one, uh, observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he give thanks, gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 45, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess, shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but also rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking uh, in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Skip down to chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Um, yeah, verse 7. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, this, this we just read and <laughs> all the other bits that we didn't read, we still acknowledge is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, uh, we come under it. We, we, we submit to it. Um, what we're, what we're talking about is not our opinions. It's your eternal, unchangeable word. And so would you give us eyes to see the truth in this passage? Would you give us minds to understand it? Would you give us hearts to embrace it, love it? Would you give us wills to obey what you admonish us to do, to, to, to perceive our own weaknesses and failings clearly so that we can obey what you say to us here and give us all ears to hear what the spirit is saying in the word and would you give me the help that i do need to teach in jesus name i ask amen all right i think that this passage in terms of the points that paul is making here it divides pretty neatly up into thirds um so if if you're taking notes here's how we're going to look at it and it, i mean the bible itself in, in in our english translation sort of divides it up this way um First, in chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, that's the first chunk. Uh, I think Paul is there giving us a call for humility. A call for humility. It, it's in these verses that Paul's basic admonition is for believers not to pass judgment on each, on each other over matters of opinion. Um, especially if neither side of the opinion violates Scripture or is contrary to the gospel. But I say it's a call for humility because um, you're dealing with uh, uh, issues in which there are two biblically permissible sides, and it's going to take humility to recognize that. That even if your side of the opinion, you think you're right, somebody else thinks the same way, and you're both okay within the bounds of Scripture. It takes humility to do that. Second, 
In the second half of the chapter, verses 13 to 23, he's going to give what I call a, a call for selflessness. A call for selflessness. If the first half of chapter 14 had to do with charity in our attitudes um, toward those who hold different opinions than us, then the second half of chapter 14 takes it a step further and admonishes us to have charity in our actions toward those same people, not causing them to stumble, which is going to require us very often laying down our rights for another person, which requires selflessness. Finally, verses 1 to 13 of chapter 15, he's going to give the example of Christ to remind us that in all of these things, if we're going to walk in obedience to them, it's nothing more than walking in the footsteps of Christ himself, who is our example in all these things. That's how we're going to divide it up and think through it. So let's go back to the beginning and think first about what Paul says in verses 1 through 12, giving us a call for humility. So Paul sets up this contrast in these verses between what he calls the weak and the strong. Paul never uses the word strong in chapter 14. He does one time at the very beginning of chapter 15, but clearly that's the contrasting position to one who is weak is one who is strong. But how does he describe those, those two positions? He seems to come down to the, what, like what would, what would be the, the demarcation of somebody who's weak versus strong? And it seems to come down to the clarity of a person's understanding of the freedom he or she has in Christ. Um, where the weak, in Paul's view, has a more restricted understanding of their freedom in Christ in certain matters. Believing they're still believing like there are certain things that, and I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about like moral matters or something. But but that there's things that Christians ought never to do, or we must do this, we must do that, or it has to be done this way. Um, where Paul says that would be a that's a that's a weak position because it doesn't understand the freedom we have in Christ for for latitude. The other would be the strong person, knowing the person who does know that there's freedom in the gospel to do those same things or not to do certain things because they're not matters of sin. Even still, some, some Christians would say, you know, you ought not do it, and then other Christians say, oh, well, that's completely fine. In other words, it's a matter of opinion. And that's exactly what Paul says he's talking about in verse 1 of chapter 14. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over what? Over opinions. So... With that, notice again what Paul is not addressing here. He's not addressing matters of right and wrong. He's not addressing matters of sin or obedience, but things that are genuinely matters of opinion or matters of adiaphora, freedom in Christ to do or not to do, um, whatever, whatever it is. And he gives two examples in this chapter of what he's talking about. In verse 2, he, it's about whether or not to eat meat. And he says, <coughs> he says one, in verse 2, he says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, in saying that, he's not saying that the, the, the weak eats only vegetables because somehow it's morally better to eat meat or it's morally worse to be a vegetarian. That's not what he's saying. He calls it weak because the person he has in mind here who eats only vegetables is convinced somehow 
that it is that in their mind it is more obedient to Christ to not eat meat, right? Um, and to eat only vegetables. And Paul is saying that's a weak position because Scripture itself makes eating meat a permissible thing. Uh, think about think about Acts chapter ten where where Peter has that that vision uh, of the sheet coming down from the heavens and all kinds of animals that he wasn't supposed to eat as a Jew, and three times. Three times, God says to Peter, arise, Peter, kill and eat. I mean, that's, that's God saying, eat that meat, son, you know? So Paul is going, and Paul's going to say uh, later in, in the chapter that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Like, in other words, Jesus didn't come with strict regulations for his followers about, about what, what they're to eat, what they're to drink, what they're not to eat, what they're not to drink. And if you remember, during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus chastised the Pharisees once, and he told them that it's not what goes into a person that defiles a person, but what comes out of that person that defiles a person. And in fact, Paul is going to say later in, the, in chapter 14 that there will be times for a believer who knows he's free in Christ to eat meat, where it could actually be better not to eat meat, right? Um, even when you have the freedom in Christ to do so. And you can imagine a situation where the reverse is true as well. But this isn't the only example he gives. Beginning in verse 5, Paul talks about the issue of days and observing or not observing special days. Paul says that, they're, they're that one person thinks that all, all the days are the same, save maybe the, you know, the Lord's Day or something like that. But another person thinks it's good to observe some, some certain days as special days, holy days or whatever, and, and, and some day of greater devotion to the Lord in some way. Think like um, the church calendar that we talk about from time to time. Um, I, I, I talked about it just most recently at Easter. Remember I told you that we think you know, Easter is like one day, but in the church calendar, Easter is like 50 days. And it goes all the way to the end of May to what the, the church has designated as Pentecost Sunday at the end of May. Well, 10 days before that, it's Ascension Day. I mean, that's, these are all things that the, that the church historically has said, these are special days to observe. We do it at Easter. We do it at Christmas. We do it at, at different times of the year. Um, but there's nothing in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture that... that um, commands Christians to observe these days in any way as special. I mean, you're not in sin if you don't, if you just treat Easter Sunday like a just regular old Sunday, or, or you, that you don't even observe Christmas Day and remember the birth of Christ in that way. You're not in sin if you don't do that, right? Because the Scripture never commands you to observe those things. But it's also not a matter of sin if you do, right? It's a matter of opinion. It's, it's a it's, um, it's a matter of, of audiophora. But many Christians do or don't. I mean, they, 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 people who do, they feel that there's great benefit in, in doing these things or observing it the way that they observe it. And they can feel so strongly about that that they feel like, man, it's such a benefit to me. I think all Christians should do this, right? And they can almost see it as a right and wrong issue. But Scripture doesn't present it that way. Paul is presenting these things as matters of opinion because that's what they are 
but he's having to mention them. I mean, he's having to include these chapters in his letter and, and other things like these things because often these, th- these kinds of things become so important to Christians that they no longer see it as a matter of opinion, right? Like, they'll, they'll see it more like an issue of right and wrong. And it's just, and they see everything as really starkly black and white when it's actually kind of gray, you know, in the Christian life. The, and, and the opinion is held so strongly that they can't even see it any other way. Like that's, all of us are prone to that sort of thing. Could, be, could do that. To see something that is very important to us and, and interpret that as, that should be important to you, right? Um, and, 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 and that it's wrong if you don't see it the way I see it. And because we're prone to that kind of thing, we're also prone, as Paul's going to point out, to pass judgment on each other because we have moved it from a matter of adiaphora to a matter of right and wrong. And if I'm right, well, then you're wrong if you don't see it the way I see it. All of us need to see that we have a tendency to think this way to different degrees about all sorts of things. And if you don't think you do, Scripture is disagreeing with you here. All of us need to see that. So what counsel does Paul give here to those Roman Christians then and, and, and to us today in, in situations uh, like this in our own lives? It seems to me that if in both situations that Paul gives examples, it seems to me that he gives the same counsel and the same admonitions in both scenarios, just worded a little differently. Paul essentially gives two little bits of counsel here that together are a call to humility for all of us. The first counsel he gives in each example he he provided is this, to realize that these kinds of issues that you might have a strong opinion about are not on the same level as the gospel. They're just not on the same level as the gospel. And opinions on issues like these don't determine a person's standing before God. Um, The way he says that, the way he says that in verse 3, to either the person who eats meat or the person who only eats vegetables, he says in verse 3, that last phrase is, you know, you can disagree, but don't pass judgment. Why? Because God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. On what basis does God welcome someone? Not on the basis of meat. On the basis of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And whatever, and, and not whatever, whether it's meat or whatever issue you f- happen to feel strongly about, that's not the gospel, right? And he says the same thing in the second example in verse 8. When he says, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. On what basis are we the Lord's? It's not, it's not just a matter of he created us in this situation. It's, it's, it's we are the Lord's in the gospel sense, that, that through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It's not eating or not eating or observing or not observing a day. These are not the things that determine whether or not a person belongs to the Lord. So the first piece of counsel that Paul gives to us to guard against the temptation to pass judgment on another person on a matter of opinion is first to have the humility to see them as just that, as matters of opinion and not matters that reflect a person's standing before the Lord. In fact, he says in verse 6 that every, no matter which side you take, in verse 6, 
everybody who in good faith does what they do or not do, whatever side, they're all trying to honor the Lord in what they're doing or refrain from doing. So godliness can rest on either side of the opinion because it's the gospel that makes a person right with God, not any opinion on a matter of indifference, however important that opinion may be to you or to someone else. So our opinions are not the gospel. That's the first piece of counsel. The second piece of counsel that, God, that, that Paul gives us, or God through Paul, to us who are tempted to pass judgment on someone because they don't see the matter of opinion the way we do, it's not just the humility to recognize that we're not, we're not dealing with gospel issues in this moment, but, which are infinitely more important. It's also the humility to realize we're not the judge of anybody anyway. Like that's, that's the other thing he says. He says it twice after each example that he gives. In the first example, just after he reminds the, the one who is tempted to pass judgment that God has accepted the one, God, God has welcomed the one that he's tempted to pass judgment on, he goes on in verse 4 to say, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. The key question there is, who are you? Who are you? The implied answer is, not the judge. And, he's, and in the second example, he says in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, or you, why do you? I mean, also the you, 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 you. Why, do you. why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And in verse 11, he quotes Isaiah 45, where God says, every knee is going to bow to me. So you can see Paul's flow of thought here. That on whatever matter of opinion you are at odds with over somebody else, and you feel so strongly that you're right and they're wrong, just remember, it's not a gospel issue. And you are confused if you think it is. And even then, if you're still convinced that you're right and they're wrong, it's still God who's going to determine that. And He will vindicate you if you're right. And you'll be better off if you just chill out about it. But in the meantime, we do what, God, what Paul says in verse 1. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And we go back to what he said in, in late ch of chapter 12 where he said, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that requires humility. To have this kind of charity in our attitudes uh, um, toward each other in matters like this, it requires a call for humility. But likewise, if we, if we move quickly to the second half of chapter 14, Paul takes the argument a step forward and from the attitude stage in the first half of the chapter to the action stage in the second half of the chapter, which will require a call for selflessness. And again, you can see Paul transitioning to this emphasis in verse 13. When he, he first repeats the conclusion of the first section. Therefore, let us not pass judgment any longer. But then he introduces the emphasis of the next section. But rather decide not, never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And here he's not just talking about passing judgment in your mind about a person, but acting in such a way that needlessly offends a person. That needlessly offends that person because you know how they feel about a particular matter, but you value your freedom in Christ more than their conscience before God. And Paul is still using 
the example from earlier of food from earlier in the in the chapter and he and he issues a very important principle in verse 14 that we don't need to miss in these discussions <clears throat> he says in verse 14 i know and am persuaded in the lord jesus that nothing is unclean in itself and those by the way stop right there those who are are the strong in this argument those who are the strong and meaning they have a very strong sense of their freedom in christ they would say amen at this point nothing is unclean in itself and they're always gonna they're always gonna be the one who are sinfully tempted to say i'm not gonna stop doing so and so just because somebody might get offended like they need to they need to deal with it like that that's gonna be that the strong person's tendency but that's not where paul ends the verse Paul admits nothing is unclean in itself, but he goes on to say, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Because again, it's not what goes into a person that defiles a person, but what comes out of a person. So says Jesus. And if a person, if a person thinks, if they think, even if unnecessarily, even if you know it's unnecessary for you to feel this way. Because it's not a sin. You can do all the persuading you want. It's beside the point. If they think that an action isn't right, it's a sin if they do it. It's a sin if they do it. Even if at rock bottom they have, a, have freedom in Christ to do that very thing. The fact is, they thought it was a sin and they decided to proceed with it. You see what I'm saying? Is what comes out of a person. And Paul says in verse 15 that you aren't loving that person if you don't change your normal pattern of behavior when you're around that person. Because if you don't, he says in the same verse, in verse 15, that, that you could contribute to harming the work of Christ in that person. Don't destroy the work of God or work of Christ. Don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. How would you do that? How, how, would, how would that happen? What does that look like? I don't know. You can, th you can think of different ways. You, you could do that either by because you didn't change your normal pattern of behavior. All right, they need to deal with it. You could tempt them to do something that in their conscience they, they believe is sin. And, 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 and you've, you've caused them to stumble into what they think is sin. And in their heart, it didn't proceed from faith. Therefore, it's sin. Or... You could, you could destroy the work of Christ because, because they believe that that thing is sin. They come to have doubts about the work of God in you because they see you doing that thing. And it could shake them in their faith because maybe they held you in high regard and now they see you doing that very thing. That sounds unnecessarily tiptoey to a lot of people who understand the freedom in Christ that they have. But that's when Paul is quick to remind us that it's not more freedom that we need. It's more selflessness. Because he reminds us that, the fo that, that following Christ is not a matter of eating and drinking. Or whatever situation is in your, uh, whatever issues in your situation. And the more we insist on our freedoms instead of being selfless, we're trying to make the kingdom about those things. Freedom in Christ, by the way, is not the freedom to do what you want to do, but the freedom to do what you ought to do. And Paul says when you use your freedom 
to give up your freedom. He says in verse 18, you're serving Christ. And you're acceptable to him. You're well-pleasing to him. He reiterates all this in verses 20 to 23, where he is quick to say again that everything, everything indeed is clean. Christianity is not a whole new set of laws. But a lot of people need much tighter guardrails for their faith for a number of reasons that shouldn't matter to you. All right? Since the most pleasant place even, you know, also for you to be is with the smile of God on you when you give up your rights. As he says in verse 21, and to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It's more blessed to give and receive than to receive. That's basically what he's saying. And Jesus said that, and he's right. It's never boring to please God above all. And Paul's final point in our passage this morning uh, is that Christ is our example in all this anyway. Again, he sums up his whole point thus far in verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. When we don't spend our lives trying to please ourselves, but as verse 2 says, trying to please our neighbor for his good, we're not just being unusually kind, we're being like Christ. Who, as verse 3 says, did not come to please himself, but instead, as he says in verse 8, became a servant and came to not be served, but to serve and gave his life as a ransom? That's Christ. Let me just, let me just end by drawing attention to verses 5 and 6, and then hopefully we'll have just a couple minutes around our tables. In verses 5 and 6, Paul gives this great benediction. But in it we realize, if you read it carefully, may the God of endurance, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Again, he's our example. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when you look at that carefully, I... I you, you realize that living this way, with this kind of humility, this kind of selflessness with, toward one another, it, it, it doesn't just require looking to Jesus as your example, because otherwise that could just be very defeating. You'd be like, man, Jesus is really good, and I'm really not. You know, that could be very defeating. But it, verses 5 and 6 teach you that it, in addition to looking G, to Jesus as your example, it also requires relying on the supernatural strength of God as your provision. Because the, verse 5 says, He is the one who grants. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. You don't have it in yourself to do it. He has to grant this to you. And He will when you ask Him to do it. And notice, it, it's not... It's not uh, Accidental that Paul describes God in verse 5 as the God of endurance and encouragement. It's hard to keep laying down your life. It requires endurance. And, it, and you get weary. You, Paul said, don't grow weary in doing good. Why did he have to say that? Because we often grow weary in doing good. It requires encouragement. And he, oh, by the way, is the God of endurance and encouragement. And he will grant you 
to live in this kind of harmony with one another. And verse 6 says, when you do, God is glorified in the way we live together with each other. This is a powerful passage. It's one worth going back to read again and more carefully and slowly. And, and to think through this passage with your own life and relationships in view and attitudes and actions. I pray that God would help us take these words to heart and, and make us more like Christ through it. We actually have about five or ish so minutes. Um, so y'all take, I, I didn't say everything that could have been said. So I'll leave it to you to say the rest of it. Um, take a few minutes and, and just reflect on this passage. Maybe what do you find difficult in it? Um, or just whatever, whatever hits you from this passage. And I'll come and close us in a minute. Lord, thank you so much for giving us a few minutes to talk about these things. Uh, there's more to say. I pray that uh, the words of this, <clears throat> this passage that we study today would be like a rock in our shoe that we wouldn't be able to uh, forget about or ignore. You, Holy Spirit, that you would remind us in, in very pertinent moments uh, for us not to insist on our own way. And to be able to have the wisdom and humility to distinguish the difference between a gospel matter and a matter of just my personal opinion. Help us to, to live in this kind of harmony that only you can grant. And would you grant it? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.